You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Break a Bat podcast where baseball meets Broadway, an attempt to show that my two favorite mediums don't have to live in such separate worlds and maybe even break some stigmas. We're happy to have you with us. Now let's play ball. Oh, welcome. Oh, welcome to our little show. This is Break a Bat, where baseball meets Broadway and sports meets show business. I'm your host, Al Malafrante, coming at you for the Broadway Podcast Network. I'm going to start this one in a very similar way as I did with our good friend of the show, Steve Whitmire, because like Steve, today's special guest has played a huge role in my life going all the way back to my childhood and in many ways has spurred so much of the creativity that I feel has helped shape me. Uh, when I was in college, I was fortunate enough to have a production internship at Kaufman Astoria Studios where Sesame Street was taped. And I got to see some of the creatives up close on a daily basis, see them go about their craft and create characters. Um, however, there were two or three extra special days that year when my learning went to a new level. And that's when the living legends came in to shoot their scenes. Uh, today, one of those legends is joining us in the batter's box more than 10 years since that internship. And I think as much as anyone in that performing troupe, she's as much of a pioneer as anyone in the Muppet universe. And that's the great Fran Brill. Uh, some background on Fran. In 1970, she was the first female puppeteer hired by Jim Henson. And over the course of 44 years with the Muppets franchise, she truly made a mark that has stood the test of time and has helped shape the childhoods of and creativity of audiences everywhere. Uh, in addition to her amazing work on Sesame Street, in which she originated Prairie Dawn and later Zoe, she also worked on The Muppet Show, The Jim Henson Hour, Saturday Night Live, so many other projects, always brought insane comedic wit and punchiness to all of her performances. And believe it or not, prior to joining Jim's team, she actually started her performing career right here on Broadway and continued to work in theater, film, and television while simultaneously performing with The Muppets. An Emmy Award winner, two-time Drama Desk nominee, fan favorite from What About Bob. Uh, just so grateful she can join us tonight. So with that being said, I ask you all to please turn your attention to Home Plate. Just beyond the marquee, now batting Fran Brill. Fran, welcome. I love that introduction. <laughs> uh, well, it's really sweet to be with you, really. It's, it's very nice. I'm flattered. I am uh, I'm fanboying a little bit. I, you know, you and I were talking a little before the show about how we go back a little bit. Uh, I'll never forget out of like the 20 or so performers I got to work with during that internship. It was only you, Steve, 
Carol Spinney and Carmen Osbar that were kind enough to like personally invite me to have coffee and hang out in the Muppet Lounge. That honor was not lost on me, especially as an intern. Still stands out. Gosh, we must have been drunk that day. I, I we're not usually that nice to strangers. <laughs> oh my goodness! How are things down south, friend? Uh, things are good. Very happy. Life is life is good. Uh, I have had been traveling an awful lot with my husband, but of course, COVID put a stop to that. Uh, but we're getting out there pretty soon. Back to normal. We're- yeah, more time for you to get your reps in on the tennis court, right? Yep, yep, yep. Got to keep active, though it's really hard when it's hot down here. Hot and humid is not my favorite thing, but um, I would I would feel horrible if I wasn't doing something. So how's it up there where you are right now? It's uh, it's hot and humid here as well. Um, I, you know, unfortunately, it, it's uh, three o'clock on a Thursday, and I'm not at the beach, but I'm here talking with you, so that's like the next best thing, if not better. So, <laughs> well, you you can live with that, right? Exactly, exactly. And you know, I you know, I was talking about you on the tennis court. I know you're such a big tennis fan. Did you play a lot while you were up here in New York? Um, no, not really. I played. I actually first started taking tennis lessons when I was in Los Angeles and I was doing a play called Deuce of Fish, Stas and Vi, a British play. Uh, I'll drop some names here. Diane Weist was in it. It was just four women. Diane Weist, Mary Beth Hart, me and Jennifer Warren. And it was uh, it was my introduction to L.A., and uh, after rehearsals, you know, all I had was the show at night. So I thought, well, while I'm out here, why don't I do something? So uh, I knew a guy who had a cousin who was a tennis pro. So I called him up and I said, hey, I'd like to take some tennis lessons. So that was when I first started. That was I don't even know when that was. But uh, I started taking lessons. And then when I lived in Connecticut, uh, I played tennis there, and then when um, I moved here, let's not spell it out where I am, uh, but when I moved here, um, uh, I started taking tennis lessons again, and there's a, a lot of other people down here, uh, a lot of women, and uh, so I, I was playing about four times a week, but I just can't do that anymore. My body just is rebelling, so now I play about twice a week. Did but you ever like, get Frank or Dave on the court when they come oh, to visit? Oh, wouldn't that you? be fun? Gosh, would that be fun or what? And Bill, like get the Muppet guys talking crew back together and we, we could, we could play tennis. Um, no, the answer to that is no. I don't think, uh, I don't think any of them play tennis. I'm not sure if that's ever come up. I'll have to find out and get back to you. Interesting. You yeah. know, Fred, I mentioned Frank Oz and uh, obviously your body of work with the Muppets actually spans longer than anyone else's in terms of the living performance outside of Frank. That's because um, I'm still alive and everything <laughs> has passed away. Uh, I mean, well, but yeah, you're right. You're right. Everybody's dying off. 
I know, I mean, I know it is sad, but nonetheless, though, I think of you as someone, you know, you mentioned Muppet guys talking, how great it was, you know, to watch that documentary a couple of years ago and celebrate those of you who are still around. I know Jerry was a part of it, obviously. And unfortunately he passed away, but right. you know, you did that for, you did it for 44 years with the Muppets and on Sesame street. When you look back on it, what are you most proud of? Oh my golly. Um, well, I guess I'm most proud of the fact that I did a job that wasn't all about me. It was a job that, that really affected children growing up and all that that entails. And, um, you know, I really loved my acting career. I loved the voiceovers. I love all of it. I really did. Uh, I think puppeteering was the hardest thing that I ever did. Because I came into it having never played with a puppet, but uh, and I'm very critical of my work always. But um, you know, my husband said that to me once, and I thought, oh, that's really nice. He said, of all the things you've done, I think you should be proudest of the fact that you know you spent most of your mature life uh, teaching children, you know, how to be nice to each other and what you know values, and helped them learn their ABCs and their numbers and um, you know, I think that's a lot better. Acting is very self-aggrandizing uh, and almost selfish, I guess. I mean, that's kind of goofy, but uh, at least I did something that did some good in the world. Let's let's say that way. If I help one child, you know, uh, <laughs> one times about three million or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only I'm only counting on one. If I only help one child, I I, I feel good about all those years. You know, I see behind you. You have a a championship trophy of sorts. I know the folks at home can't see this, but I see your original Prairie Dawn puppet. Yes, when I retired in 2014, uh, I was absolutely shocked when they called me to the set under pretenses that I had another scene to shoot and I walked out there and there was the producer of the show and they gave me this huge bouquet of beautiful flowers and this, my very own Prairie Dawn, she's got her rods in, she's got this uh, plastic box that she lives in to keep her free from dust and everything, but I can take the box off and actually put her on. I haven't done that. Uh, and I don't really want to do that, but um, yeah, it's really, I mean, those things are, those puppets, those are valuable, those puppets. Oh, I can tell you quickly a terrible story, which I don't think I've told anyone about the value of these puppets. I was sent to, I'm going to say Philadelphia on the train. I had to go from New York to Philadelphia. I think it was Philly or it was DC, but at any rate, and I had Zoe with me, which is the my other kind of major principal character. And uh, they always put the puppet in a in a bag, like a duffel bag, a small duffel bag. You probably are familiar with that. And um, I did I did the job, and then I I took the trip, I took the the train back home, and I had put the bag with her in it in the. Um, uh, the baggage area above my seat. Bad idea. And I got off the train and I came up out onto the streets of New York where a car was waiting for me. 
and I realized, oh my God, I didn't bring, I didn't bring the bag. And I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And I went, oh my God. So I ran back into Penn Station, traced my steps, ran to get back, uh, you know, to the, uh, the gate where the train had arrived. And I, I know I, I sort of remembered vaguely where I sat because, you know, there's lots of cars on a long train. And I just kept running and running and looking. And I then I got to an area where I thought it would be. And I think I, I passed a few cleaning people along the way who were cleaning the train. And I said, has anybody seen, you know, a bag that was up there? And they and I told them roughly where I sat. And they just said, we'll keep on going. And the good news is, is that when I got to back to where my seat was, the bag was there. It was it was soon enough that nobody had had come cleaned that area of the train and said, what is this? And taken it to the lost and found. But I, that was probably one of my heart attack moments in my life. And I don't know that I ever told that to anybody because it would have been so terrible if. I had lost her. I mean, I don't know how much it costs to make these puppets, but I know it's a lot. So anyway, that little side story there. That was some divine intervention that she yeah. was still there. That literally never happens. You lose something on the train, it's gone. At least that's how it's been in my past experience. And, and usually, you know, it's hopefully just a pair of sneakers. But um, yeah, I, I can't imagine what would have happened that somebody would have opened that bag and said, what on earth is this? And unless they knew Sesame Street, they probably thought it was some sort of orange doll, you know, or I don't even want to go there, but I was very lucky. Very lucky. I love Zoe, but I do have a special affinity for Prairie Dawn because she was there. Oh, really? Thank you so much. <laughs> One of my favorite people too, Al. You know, we used to, well, Prairie, we used to jokingly call uh, my sister Megan by that name because on the surface, she was like this cute little kid like Prairie was. And, you know, she loves to be the director of just about anything, be it pageants or sometimes dinners or where we're going on a family vacation. And, you know, we'd suddenly say this, see this like cuteness take a backseat to this temper that came out of left field. And, friend, I loved how you always were able to take on the surface what what was this like cute little pink puppet and turn it into such a three-dimensional character. I have to know, how much of Fran Brill is in Prairie Dawn? Oh, golly. Well, I'm sure a lot because, you know, the original intention was uh, that she was, as Jim said to me, as, she, as he handed me this pink puppet years ago, he said, um, well, you know, we want her to be this really sweet little girl and, you know, she, they put a smocked dress, which was very popular at that time with little girls. It probably still is. And uh, they just wanted her to be a sweet little girl. I don't know how to do that, quite honestly. Um, <clears throat> but I, if, you, if you look at the really old YouTube stuff, um, the stuff that's on YouTube, you know, she, she was kind of sweet the first go around, like those pageants that she did when she played the piano. And, um, but as the years went by, you know, th it wasn't funny. And I just thought the funnier thing would be this, this little girl who's the smallest puppet 
would be very sure of herself and controlling and uh, anal. I mean, she's a, she's certainly a type A person. And I found that funny. And I, so did everybody else. So, <laughs> you know, that stuff just happens. It's the more you do a character and it's always good to find opposites. You know, if you have a big, big puppet, it's good to have a squeaky voice, you know, something that's surprising and something that uh, amuses you as a performer. So I loved it when they would write something where she just went bananas if it didn't work out right. Because I've always said, and um, Stephanie DeBruzzo has now taken over Prairie. And, you know, we talked about it and I said, it's not that it's not that she's, you know, um, nasty. It's just that she's a perfectionist, you know, that in her life, everything has got to be the way she needs it to be for her well-being. So if she gets upset, it's because things haven't, you know, are not good enough or perfect enough. But it's not it's not anger at the other person, really. I think you a know, lot of people are like her, you know. She's yeah. small, but I, I always said I thought one day she would run the network. You know, <laughs> would leave Sesame Street. And she'd work because she'd be executive producer of uh, – the Sesame Workshop, and then she she run PBS. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you agree that there was a sense of maturity with her character, much like a Bird or Ernie? Because you know you had Frank under Bird and Jim or Steve under Ernie. Whereas, like you know, some of the other characters were maybe geared more towards uh, the younger crowd, like an Elmo or a, a Zoe, for example. Did you like play it as someone that, or play it as a character that could be appreciated by? both adults and kids? No, I never thought about who the audience was. I don't think any of us really did. It was about developing a character. And um, it's it's even like, you know, that annoying phrase when people say, oh, Fran Brill did the voice of Prairie Dawn. Yes, but she also performed the character. It isn't, it isn't a voiceover job. It's a, it's a puppeteering, but it, you're really, the voice comes out of the character. It's, it's that's where the, the character is, you know, you, you just don't slap on, um, you can slap on an idiosyncrasy, like her, her wanting everything to be, you know, perfectly aligned, let's say, but um, her voice really came for me because Jim had said, well, we want her to be very sweet. And, okay, so I, I have more a voice that's located in my lower register. This is my relaxed way of speaking. But to sound like a little girl, it has to go up and not have all the bottom in it. And um, where am I going with this? <laughs> uh, just that, so the voice is up there. But it can go even higher as she gets more hysterical if things don't work out. Uh, so, you know, they, it's all of a piece. It really is. It's all of a piece, the way, the way a character moves as a puppet or sounds as a, as a puppet. It's just intrinsic to the whole package of who that character is. You know, I th yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it really helped that you 
joined the Muppets when you did because they had started to become an established entity at that time, not just from Sesame Street, but also, you know, all the work they were doing on the Ed Sullivan show and the commercials. Mm. Uh, you talked about how foreign puppetry was to you at the time. I know you've told this story before, but about how you linked up with Jim Henson almost by mm-hmm. accident, mm-hmm. but can you take us through what was going through your mind when you answered that classified ad for Muppets Inc.? Sure, sure. So, uh, I had come to New York in a Broadway show, show closed, had to make some money. Uh, I saw an ad in the paper. It was um, either showbiz or backstage. I think it was probably backstage. But anyway, it's just said that Jim Henson was looking to train puppeteers for an upcoming Ed Sullivan Christmas special starring Art Carney. Now, I had never played with a puppet. I knew nothing about puppets. Uh, all I knew was that I could do voices, and I had watched this show called Sesame Street. I had watched the first season because that was exactly when I arrived in New York. And uh, it would cheer me up because it was funny and silly. I also watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which made me feel good about myself. So the two shows at the end of my horrible day uh, made me feel good. So anyway... I just thought, okay, well, maybe uh, I can just do voices or, you know, for all the animated stuff that I saw on Sesame Street, whatever. I just thought maybe I could just get a job. So um, so when I answered the ad, uh, I, I guess I, yeah, I called over there. I actually got Jim Henson on the phone, I believe. It was that small an organization, and I just said, you know, I'm really not a puppeteer. I am an actress. I just was in a Broadway show that closed, and I know I can do voices and characters because I'm, I'm an actress. That's part of the baggage. And he said, well, that's all right. Um, you know, come on over. So he set up a time, and I walked in uh, to what was then the Jim Henson Company, and there was Frank Oz and Jim Henson and uh, a trunk full of puppets and a floor to ceiling mirror. And, you know, I'm so stupid. I I didn't even really think, Oh, I'm auditioning, you know, because I could have cared less. All I wanted to do was earn some money, whatever. And I wasn't, I really wasn't um, intimidated. I don't know. I, I I can only count it up to being stupid, but I just, uh, Thought, well, this will, you know, whatever. So there were some little scripts, and we did scripts, and then Jim would have me put on a different Muppet. I think he just wanted to see what kind of range I had, what kind of person I was. But it seemed to go pretty well, and uh, it was very easygoing, you know, Jim being Jim. He just talked in his very quiet voice, you know. It was not at all tense. I remember we laughed. Um, it just seemed like uh, we all, we, the three of us got along okay. So then I did get into the two-week workshop so that you learned how to puppeteer, you know, the Muppet way. And then um, uh, I did the workshop. And then out of that workshop uh, came Richard Hunt. Do you remember hearing about Richard Hunt? Scooter, he, Forgetful Jones, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, so he and I were the, the only two in that workshop that were then asked to do Sesame Street after we shot that special 
um, the great Santa Claus switch. So it, it was just as fluky as that, you know, just answering an ad for a job I really didn't want, but thought, well, okay, it's, and they were paying us to take this workshop, which was really nutty. Uh, and I think it was like $65 a week just to take the, take the, the workshop. And that meant a lot, you know, if you're not earning any money at all. So, uh, and the workshop basically was just learning the rudimentary uh, style of puppeting that Jim did, where you lip synced perfectly with your hand. It wasn't just opening and closing like Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, you know, just haphazardly. Uh, and we had eyeballs on our fingers. And um, it was, you know, it was challenging, but there were, there were a ton of us. And after one week, Jim and Frank let some people go. And then after the second week, they let people go. But they also asked some of us to go do this shoot in Toronto. So that was really the start of it. And then when that was over, Jim asked Richard and I if we wanted to do Sesame Street in the fall. This was June when we did the um, when we did the Ed Sullivan Christmas special. Mm -hmm. One of my favorites and, and I feel like does not get enough love. Oh. fans, because I think it is absolutely brilliant, but I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry, go uh, no, on. no, no, I haven't seen, I know I have a copy of it here, but I haven't seen it probably maybe once I saw it after we shot it. I should probably see that again, but I, I mean, I don't think, uh, you think it would last the test of time right now in today's oh, uh world? I think it's just cheerful glee is what it is. I have to know though. Who, do you remember who you performed in that? Like which characters that you puppeteered or anything about wow. that shoot? Cause it doesn't uh, get talked about a lot. I really want to know. I think it was a frackle, which was some sort of weird bird looking puppet. That's uh, how Gonzo started as a frackle. Uh, really? Wow. I, I think he was in that special and they called him the, I have my Gonzo coffee mug right here, but I ha I think they called him the cigar box frackle from that special. From that special. Really? And then Dave wasn't there at that point. No, I don't know who no, was performing him, but yeah, yeah, I think that was the earliest Gonzo. Oh, that's interesting. I, I really don't remember, but you know what? If I saw the show, I'll bet you it would come back right away. And I could tell you, um, uh, anyway, so that's how Richard and I started in the fall of uh, 1970. When, yeah, fall of 1970. So, yeah. Now, I know that you mentioned that you weren't nervous when you auditioned. However, when you get onto the set, at that point, the Muppets are primarily a boys club. Um, but the one thing that amazes me, and this goes back to your earliest days, was the rapport that you had with Frank Oz when you were doing your scenes together, whether either, you know, with Prairie and Cookie Monster or Prairie and Grover. At that point, he's Jim's main guy. How much did that help you in the early days? And was that chemistry instant that the two of you shared? Oh, yeah. I, I think it was the chemistry between Jim and me and Frank and me and then Dave and me. And I don't know. It just was real easy they were always so great to me. Um, I knew nothing about puppeteering when I was hired. And they, uh, you know, they didn't laugh or snicker behind my back. They were very sweet. And, um, you know, I, 
I, it never even occurred to me, and I honestly mean this, that I was the first female. I never, I never thought of myself differently. I would have said that I was one of the guys. Do you know what I mean? Um, I didn't feel like I was here and they were over there. I was part of the group, that's all. And I think because it didn't mean that much to me, I just had a great time. I was a great audience for them. I, I, I would laugh at everything because they were so funny. I loved watching the, you know, the Ernie, uh, Burton Ernie bits. And I don't know. I just remember that those first years as just being kind of fun. Uh, I was mostly doing right hands in the beginning. Uh, but then if there was, a, then, then, then they began to trust me a little bit more. And then I would do anything Muppets in a group song. I did Little Bird. That was the first puppet that Jim kind of gave me. But all of these were nice and small. and I could deal with them because my hands weren't like their hands. Um, you know, there was no recipe at that time. There was nothing to live up to. It was just, hey, we're starting this television show. Let's hope it works out, folks. Um I never really felt the only pressure I felt was self-imposed because I didn't want them to ever have to take another take because of me. So I'm not sure I even did my best work. I know I didn't because I was very concerned about doing it right instead of just letting it go. But I never felt that I deserved to say, Oh, can I do that again? Because you had Frank and you had Jim and you, you know, these people who are so talented and um, they would ask, like we, we would shoot Muppet inserts. They would they would either stick their head in the shot, you know, purposely to ruin it so that they could do another take. Frank <laughs> is very, very famous for that. Uh, but I never I never had the guts to do that, to say, oh, look, I, I think Prairie needs another take new. I just tried to struggle through and shoot it and um uh anyway but i i loved being you know i i guess it sounds like a contradiction it never the importance of my being the first female never occurred to me until so much later in my life when people who are keeping score said you know you're you're the first female that has been hired you know other than jane who 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 did who was who did his right hands and helped him a lot when their careers first started. But I was the first person that they actually paid, you know, to do this. And I was given a lot of characters and stuff. So I don't know. Um, I was just in the right place at the right time because they felt pressure to hire a bona fide female. I happened to have all the skills required except for the puppeteering part. But, but, but in a way, you can get away with murder if it sounds right or it sounds good or it's acted well, even if your manipulation isn't a thousand percent right, even a hundred percent right. You know what I mean? Well, you had that. I mentioned it earlier. You had that brilliant comedic wit. And I've heard that there would be times when you'd be on set just making the whole crew lose it to the point that oh, they forgot good. they were on the set of a kid's show. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's great. I, I have a, a bit of a foul mouth. 
it could have been that. I know if I have somebody laughing at what I say, I can be pretty outrageous. Um, but I, I'm glad to hear that. I guess I did. When I'm very comfortable with somebody, I think I am pretty funny and outrageous. Um, and I enjoyed being in their company so much, you know. It, they just made made it easy for me to just be myself. But yeah, Frank Frank is Cookie Monster and Prairie. We were ridiculous. We were just ridiculous. But this is all in between takes. This is all playing, which is what makes the Muppets the Muppets, and which is what Jim always encourages that you shouldn't think, oh my God, I'm going to work. It's playing. Acting is playing. And uh, when you're loose and you're comfortable, you just allow yourself to be free. And if you work in a horrible, constricted environment where somebody is watching you and, and thinking, boy, she's just terrible doing that or whatever, if you feel that, all you do is get smaller and smaller and more and more frightened and more and more inhibited. I mean, it's awful. I've been in, in uh, plays where the director will you know, pick on somebody in the cast. And it's so awful that even if it's not you being picked on, that environment is just deadly. I stay away from anybody and anything that is like that. We should all just be happy and fun and be kind to each other. And that's where the, that's where the good stuff happens, not by blaming somebody and making them feel horrible. How can you do, how can you be better in that kind of atmosphere? Right. And I think that that's a real testament to the way Jim went about doing business and selecting the right people. I think Stevie was even talking about, it's like he almost wanted to see how you were going to gel with the rest of the group because there was that common vision. There mm -hmm. was an optimism and a spirit with all that work. So, mm -hmm. and it really brought out the best in everyone. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh yeah. There's no question because Jim always was one of us. It wasn't like Jim and us it was it was he was one of us he would make mistakes he would laugh at himself we were all in the trenches together he never acted as a boss but we all knew he was you know we all knew he was the leader but he didn't um he didn't act like that and he didn't rub it in or anything like that he he it was a group endeavor always and it still is and i think if you don't fit into that where one puppeteer will help another puppeteer. If you're in a really weird position, you know, another puppeteer might say, hey, move the monitor over here. And you go, oh, my God, of course, that would be so much easier for me to do uh, to puppeteer, even if it's backwards, you know, to know, OK, if I look over my shoulder, at least I can I can see what I'm doing. That's it. It was a group effort of helping each other and I don't know what it's like now, but I'm really hoping that it, that that has continued um, now that some of us have, you know, left the show. Does it bother you at all to see the way the regimes change between Frank and Steve not being there anymore? You're retired, obviously. Carol's passed away. Does it, is it tough to look at what it's become? And that's no knock on anyone there now, but is it kind of weird in some ways? No, it doesn't bother me at all because I'm not part of whatever struggles may or may not be going on there. Of course, you know, there's new executive producers, there's new this, there's new that all the time. 
Um, there's, I think, several new puppeteers that have been added to the mix. I mean, it's always different for them to not have me there anymore, or Frank has been gone a long, long time. Um, you know, things change. That's all. Things change. It doesn't mean they get worse. Hopefully they get better. Uh, but the dynamic has changed. That's all. But I think most of the puppeteers that have been there many years, like Marty, Marty Robinson, that is, and Stephanie, and now Leslie, uh, Carrera, and Carmen, they still perpetuate what they have learned from the rest of us. In other words, I passed on what I learned from Jim and and how I was, I pretty, I'm pretty sure passed on to somebody who's there now. You know, that's all. So the source was always Jim. How did Jim behave? How did he act towards other people? I'm hoping that we as seedlings of Jim continue doing that out in the real world. I know I do. I try to. Fran, I want to use a baseball parallel here for a moment, just to talk for the, for about forty people who are listening. <laughs> well, you know, you see, I, I've been here people clicking this off. What's he doing? He's not talking sports at all. He's talking about puppets. <laughs> Hopefully, me, the audience is very much used to this by now. But. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, listen, I'm wearing a Yankee hat, so I'm just going to bring up one parallel here. And I actually kind of equated it to your career in some ways. Um, Mickey Mantle, who I'm sure you've heard of, uh, you know, he started his career playing in the World Series virtually every year. And almost overnight in 1965, his teammates started to show their age and the guard changed when they, and they couldn't keep winning anymore. He went from playing with his best friends on a nightly basis to suddenly having an entirely different team around him. And he decided that he didn't want to play anymore just for the sake of hanging on. When Frank and Steve left, did that influence your decision to retire at all? No, because when Frank left, it was really a long time ago. Um, he was no. a day player, though, on occasion, though, wasn't he? At least um, he would come back every once in a while and resume doing Cookie Monster or Grover even though new puppeteers had taken over those jobs. And then that, I think, got a little awkward. But Frank really has not been on the set for 20 years, at least. Uh, but no, I made the decision because, like uh, Mickey Mantle, I began to say to myself, um, I think I'm getting a little old for this. I began to feel silly. I began to feel all sorts of things that you shouldn't feel. Um, there were a lot of young puppeteers around me, and I, I don't think they felt like, oh, there's a big difference between me and Fran, but I felt it. I felt, I just felt it's time to move on, pass the baton, give some other female puppeteers a chance here. Um, I, didn't, I didn't like how I was performing. I didn't think I was as good as I should be. Um, uh, it was getting... It was just getting, it was just time to time. You know, I mean, my husband used to say, well, when do you think you're going to retire? Because he was itching to get out of the Northeast. And um, I said, well, I don't know, but I'll, because I, I, I'd already given up commercials and theater and all that stuff. So this was the last thing before I, you know, hung up my hat, as it were. And I, I, I just 
it's hard to let go of because it's a family over there. But then again, a lot of my family members had left the show. So it was a combination of factors. And I just had a, an epiphany one day and I said, it's time to retire. It is time to retire. So I called, uh, I guess it was Carolyn Parenti at the time and said, I'm going to do one more season and that's it. Um, so that was, and then, and what was that that happened? That was in 2014. Oh, and then they, they canceled a season. What happened exactly? Maybe like, was that the, I'm just off the top of my head. Maybe the yeah. HBO transition, did that have something to do with that? Well, ironically, the last day, which was September 30th, 2014, when I had a goodbye party, uh, well, actually, the night before had been my celebration, or as I, as I call it, my memorial, because it was like a memorial. I, they threw a nice big thing um, the night before, which would have been September 29th, at uh, the Museum of the Moving Image. And there are about 125 people there. And uh, Craig Shemin, do you, do you know Craig, right? Stephanie's, Stephanie's husband. The, he runs the Jim Henson, um, not alumni, well, but he, I, the historical. The legacy, the legacy. He was legacy, the legacy. yes. And um, anyway, he interviewed me on stage. And then he had done a whole presentation of everything I ever done in my life from on-camera commercials and pictures of me. Uh, and it was just a very heady, wonderful, warm night for me, and one I'll never forget. And, um, and, you know, if I had died the next day, I would have been perfectly happy. It was a really nice send-off. But the next day, when they pretended to call me back for another bit for this shoot we were doing, um, I saw Jeff Dunn who was the incoming executive producer in the elevator. And I'm carrying my bouquet of flowers and stuff. And I go, hi, Jeff. Welcome welcome to Sesame Street. I'm Fran Brill and I'm leaving. I mean, he knew who I was, of course. But literally, he was coming in and I was going out. <laughs> so, yes, I think that changes it enormously. We had several executive producers during my time at Sesame Street, and usually they want to, you know, change everything to put their imprimatur uh, or their imprint anyway on everything. But I had made my decision before that anyway. I mean, to leave before we had yet another changeover. It was just something personal within me, and I said, "Bingo! This is time to go." Wow. And it's been nice to see, however, that you've still stayed so close to those other cornerstone players like a Frank Oz, Dave Goals, Steve Whitmire, Bill Beretta, like the actual greats. It's nice oh, to see that, that even in retirement. Yeah, I love that. Oh, yeah. And I, I still talk to Carmen and Stephanie. Love and Carmen. Leslie, yes. And uh, I talked to Joey Mazzarino and I, you know, this is my life and my family for so many years. Why would I jettison everybody? I What I really miss is seeing these, the children of these, you know, performers grow up, like Matt's five children. You know, I'm, I met them when they were born, and now one is going off to college. And, no, I guess the second one's going off to college. So I, 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 I miss them as people and friends, 
And so I feel like it's up to me to keep up and, you know, remind them I'm still alive and uh, call them or text them or, you know, whatever. And it's, you know, like, like time, no time has passed at all when you get together with any, any of these people. It's just like the old days, which is very nice. Um, yeah. Uh, you're tugging at my heartstrings here, Fran. It's I have always thought of you all as a family, and, um, and you're right. Yeah, right. That's it's 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 exactly what it's exactly what it well, is. Well, you know, a- even if you work at IBM for forty years, you would feel when you left that you were leaving a family. I mean, I I, I don't know what it's like to work in a different workplace. Obviously, Sesame Street's very special, but. I would think when you've put in that long a time and they give you a gold watch, if they still do that, um, you know, you feel like you're, you're, you're leaving a certain time in your life. But I don't think like that. I also think that life is, is divided into uh, sections. And so I've moved on now to another part of my life, that's all. But it doesn't mean that I would jettison everyone that's come before, uh, but it's just a new chapter, that's all. And that can be a good thing. It's up, it's up to all of us to make whatever chapter we're in a good chapter. You know, we have, we have control over that. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. That's so well said, Fran. And uh, I think it speaks to the longevity of your career and the success you've enjoyed. And listen, you've accomplished a lot, but uh, I do have to warn you that it might get a little tough here on break a bat for a moment. Um, we do a segment here called fastball derby. Have you, are you familiar with fastball derby at all, Fran? No, it sounds like you're going to give me a word and I have to give you a word association. <laughs> well, I, I, a little different. I was back to our sports theme. I want you to picture yourself in the batter's box. All right. Ninth inning. Yeah. is loaded two out game on the line and Araldus Chapman is on the mound throwing a hundred. I don't know who that is. Well, I, let me give you some background on him. He's the fastest throwing man ever. He threw a pitch at 105 miles an hour. Once he pitches for the Yankees, seven time all-star. Uh, what, what would Prairie Dawn have to say to someone like that? By the way, what would he, what would she say to Araldus Chapman? You're cute. <laughs> Well, you got to think quick because he's throwing fast. And okay. I'm going to ask you a question, friend. Okay. And you tell me what comes to mind. You're a great storyteller. I'd love for the audience to hear some of more, even more of your stories in this format. So how does that sound? I'll give it a try. All right. Batter up, friend. 
favorite New York City meal? Pizza. Greatest baseball game or sporting event you've ever been to? I went to a Yankees game once. <laughs> Do you remember what decade? Oh my gosh, yeah. It was probably in um I'm trying to I trying to think of who I went with. Uh I would say it was in the late seventies. So that's when they were winning. They won the championship 77 and 78. I also was a fan of Jim Longborn. Do you remember who he was? He played for the Boston Red Sox because I went to Boston University and uh, fine arts school. And Jim Longborn was, was a very attractive pitcher at that time. Yes, that's right. He pitched for... He was, but he was attractive. <laughs> No, he um he pitched for quite a while. He made he won a Cy Young award. I want to say in the late '60s, so that must have. And he was with the Red Sox at that point, so that yeah. kind of makes sense with your BU timing. Yep, you betcha. Wow, that is I see the little known fact. I love that. Yeah. Um, last Yankee question. I promise. Are you Team Derek Jeter or Team Alex Rodriguez? Derek Jeter, no question. I remember. I had my Yankee jacket on one day during the internship, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And I remember you, I, that's one of the first things you and I were talking about. It was your love of Derek Jeter. And I wanted to, uh, I, I was hoping that, uh, that you would answer that a way. Really nice person, a good person, a nice human being. I, I just, everything I've ever gleaned about him seems very positive. So I, that was, that was a no brainer for me. Great answer. I mean, Alex was, you know, Alex did some naughty things in his life, you know. Uh, I mean, time forgives everybody, but uh, Derek Jeter never cheated or did or was on steroids or anything like that. That's right. And you didn't cheat on any wives or girlfriends, et cetera, That's et cetera, correct. et cetera. <laughs> yeah, Alex, Alex is, a, he, I think he's a, a forever playboy. Yeah, he's got problems. <laughs> he's got he problems. hasn't he been married at least twice? Well, he was uh, married once and he was engaged to J-Lo for a little while. He ruined that. And now he's trying to buy a, or he just bought a basketball team. Um, yeah. yeah. So. Well, I think he's a very good businessman. And mm -hmm. I look, I can't sit here and judge him as a person. All I can know, all I can say is that I think Derek Jeter is definitely uh, my favorite over Alex Rodriguez. I hope he isn't listening. <laughs> well, I'm sure he is, friend. Yeah, Actually, sure right, is, stepping right. right out from the closet here is Alex Rodriguez. Right. No, right. right. Oh, what a surprise! <laughs> uh, okay, so here's a uh, here's an interesting one. You know, we talked about your Broadway background. If you yeah. could be the lead in one Broadway musical, what would it be? Oh my gosh, a musical! Oh wow. Well, if I could. If I could tap dance, well, I can very poorly, but I, I mean, I love that. Uh, it would probably be 42nd Street, I'm going to say. Fun one. But I, yeah. Favorite holiday tradition? Mm. Uh, not I, The only tradition we have is that we go visit our relatives, you know, every other year for Christmas. But a particular thing we do, not really. America's band, the Beach Boys or the Eagles? 
Oh, wow. What a good question. The Eagles. You got a favorite Eagles song, Fran? No. <laughs> Not that I can think of. But I much prefer them. I think they were a really good group. And you know it's Eagles. It's not the Eagles, right? True. That is right. That that is my bad. I've I've asked that question to pretty much probably about forty guests or so, and I typed it out wrong. And I feel like I just insulted uh, Glenn Fry and Don Henley. So did your other I, friends call? Did your the other people you interviewed call call them the Eagles erroneously? I don't remember because most people pick the Beach Boys, actually, <laughs> believe it or not. Interesting. Oh, We've had a couple. Kimberly Williams Paisley picked Eagles and sung a verse of Hotel California. And I think that she said Eagles, so she didn't use the the. So the, the, actually, the, I know. <laughs> um, OK, interesting one. Favorite Muppet that you didn't perform yourself. I really don't know. I don't. I I feel like I, I I got a huge variety, even if it was just in anything Muppet, uh, and it would have been some other character, like a guy's character. But I, there really was no character. I can't nothing. I got nothing for you on this. I have nothing. So you don't have a a favorite that you know Frank did or Jim or a, any anyone like that? Not that I would want to do. No, because that's who. That that character is the way they are because they're doing them. Oh, I just meant as far as who you enjoy, which um, which character you liked seeing on screen the most, or who made you laugh the most. Not necessarily stepping oh. in as the performer, just your oh, okay. favorite. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh gosh, probably Frank. I mean, he's such a genius. Everything he did was so funny and great. Um, whether it was Miss Picky or any number of characters, Sam the Eagle. A great character. Uh, he's he's just top of the crop. Um, so many characters he did. Anything that Frank did, I that's that's who I would root for. Now, speaking of Frank Oz, I want to name three of your contemporaries, and I'd like to know your favorite memory working alongside each of them. Favorite sketch, favorite memory, favorite scene, favorite bit. It could be anything you want. There's no rules in fastball derby. Uh, let's start with Frank Oz. I think when we did Prairie Dawn and uh, Cookie Monster together, especially the stuff we did uh, on Monsterpiece Theater, this is so long ago. It's really interesting. It's like, what do you remember? It's something that happened so, so way back. But I, also stuff I did with Dave Redman when he was doing uh, Cookie Monster with Prairie Dawn. But Frank, Frank is a catalyst which is why he works so well with Jim. Uh, he's, a, he's what I call a catalyst performer, while some of us are more reactionary performers. And he would just do the most outrageous stuff um, just to make me laugh, just to make the set laugh, to, just to make himself laugh. You know, looking under Prairie Dawn's uh, dress. And then uh, I would say something like... Uh, uh, Oh, why is it Tuesday or Wednesday? And this is a, a referring to something you probably wouldn't get, but there was a time when little girls had panties that said Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And, you know, there would be something like that. And, and the seamier 
the better. That's all I can say is if I could be really out there, it would make Frank laugh. And, and you know, that's what we did in between takes because that's what you do when there's a female around. You know, if there's a bunch of guys, they act a certain way. But you drop a female into that group and the whole dynamic changes. I don't know if you would say for the better or not. But especially if you had a female who thought it was hysterically funny and was never offended, you know, being offended is like so far from who I am. So, you know, he made me laugh and then I made him laugh and, you know, that's the way it was. I love these behind the scenes stories, but I I, I do want to tell you mine. I'm curious if it stands out to you. Um, Prairie Dawn directing Grover and singing in the rain. Does that one stand out at all? Hmm. Yeah, that's one of my favorite. It's, it's a very old bit, but the premise was just terrific. And I also love the fact that Prairie was the director. That may have been the first time she ever held a megaphone. Then they started to write more stuff for her as the director. And um, for people who are listening and don't know what we're talking about, um, it was based on the song Singing, on the Ra- Singing in the Rain from the movie. And um, Grover, Grover played the Gene Kelly role. And uh, the premise was teaching the children the difference between wind, rain, and snow. So we were teaching weather in that bit. And Prairie Dawn was the director, complete with, you know, Joffers. Like she was a director out of the 1930s with a megaphone and her director's chair. And um, so she was directing this little movie. And Grover was her leading actor. And he would come on and the music would start and he had an umbrella. And... uh, he would, I think he was singing and singing in the rain. And then um, all of a sudden it would snow. And then Prairie Dawn would go, stop, stop, stop. No, 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 that's not rain, that's snow. And then Grover would have to go back and he got another, another umbrella or the same umbrella, I can't remember. And he would do it again. And this time it was it was uh, wind, and he and the umbrella were completely blown back and away. And uh, she again freaked out and said, "No, no, that's not right. I need wind, not rain. Wind. I mean, I need rain, not wind." And then, uh, then finally, gosh, how did that end? Uh, oh, I don't remember. I remember there was a lot of yelling. Uh, I, I wish I remember how to sketch it. It's been a while, but it stands yeah. out. Oh uh, God, what, what would be the end of that? I, I think I think he finally does it right. Or, or everything works right. He comes on. He goes singing in the rain, just singing in the rain, and the rain comes down, and he stops for some reason. And Prairie goes cut, 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 cut. What's wrong, Grover? And <laughs> Grover. What does he say? He says, I'm all wet. (laughs) And he walks off. The very spot that we've been working on that finally was done correctly. And then he 
ruins it and leaves it. But it was a really, I don't remember who wrote that. I should find out. Um, but it was a really clever, clever skit. Absolutely love it. Um, all right. Number two, Steve Whitmire. Yes. Favorite moment working with him. Oh, Stevie. Well, the first, my favorite mo moment is that he knew I read the New York Times every day. So he was my New York Times delivery boy when he would come to the set. So if he was in New York working on the show, he would come in every morning and he'd give me the New York Times. So we have a little running gag about that, uh, that he's, he's been my delivery boy. Uh, normally I would have bought the paper later in the day and gone home and read it. But anyway, he would give it to me. Um, gosh, I don't know, he's a, such a sweet, sweet guy. I don't know. He's was so good. What a terrific puppeteer. You would give him a dog puppet and he would find a million things to do. That was dog behavior. That was just brilliant. Just brilliant. Um, do I have a special memory other than the newspaper? Um, not that I can think of right now. I'm awful at these questions because <laughs> I don't. You know, everybody loves what was your the, your best memory or the and I. I should have write them down if I ever thought of them. But anyway, I I don't know. He just was a brilliant performer. Still is fantastic puppeteer. Um, and I I thought he he did Ernie really well. You know, I thought I thought he captured Ernie really well, but uh, I don't have a special one thing that I remember. No, it's a culmination of things. I like that, and uh, with this last one, I feel like it might end up being the same way. Just so many different things, it's hard to narrow down one. But um, Jim Henson, a special memory of him, or, or working with him, work one that stands out about above all the others. Uh, well, I do remember like, uh, uh, well, it was just crazy having to keep up. Well, I would right hand for him when he was doing, let's say, Ernie. And it would, what we did in the, in the, in the day, I want to say the old days, I guess I might as well say that the old days, we used to have cables so that our, our, equipment was there were cables all over the floor um and i had we we would pre-record the songs and then we would perform and lip sync to the playback on the set so i just remember being dragged all over the set because my right hand was in ernie's right his sleeve the puppet sleeve and trying to keep up with Jim as he is like doing all of this movement and choreography and I'm doing it backwards. And it was just, and I'm wearing boots that are this high to stay up to, to approximate because I'm, well, I was five, four and he was at least six, two. And, um, you know, I wore these boots and I just remember thinking I'm going to kill myself because I'm having to run in these high boots trip not trip over these cables and keep this right arm alive so that I don't, you know, and keep it up high so that it looks like a normal arm for the puppet. Uh, but, oh, I don't know. So many, I learned so much from him being a person. 
Uh, I mean, it just shaped my behavior. As I've said many times, more than my parents' effect on me. Um, he was like the first grown-up that really had an effect on how to how to be an adult and how to behave in a work situation. He just um, he always was so generous and kind and understanding of where you were or I was and. Just the way he would, he would treat, you know, read through and how he'd make suggestions and see if any of us had any suggestions. Um, I, I kind of learned how to deal with problems that would come up or like, I just remember so many times in New York, like being in a cab stuck in traffic and I'm. On, on my way to an audition or something, and I just got to be there quickly. And I would just say to myself, how would Jim handle this? Jim would probably just say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. You know, they're a kid and they can't make the cab go any faster. And just to deal with it in a sane way so that you don't get all crazy. And uh, I, I know that's very much how I behave now. I just, uh, I mean, from from that point on, I just, it changed my behavior to things just because he was an example for me and somebody who I looked up to. Wow. I, I got the chills just listening to that. And uh, I, 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 I don't even know how to respond to it. I mean, it, it, but it all makes sense because, you know, as I mentioned before, you and I, I was fortunate enough to you know, work alongside yeah, you yeah. for a few months. And I mean, you're just, sure. you're an incredible person, friend. I feel like so blessed well, that you. our audience got to listen to you today. Well, this thank you. It's been great seeing you again. I'm sorry, audience, that you can't see him. Uh, but uh, it's great seeing you and it's been great fun talking to you. I wish you a lot of luck with your show and uh, that you have nothing but good times ahead. Well, you're the best friend. You just you gotta do me a favor. Uh next time you're in New, you're in New York, you're gonna let me know. I know you love your New York pizza. I'll take you and uh we'll we'll all go out and we'll grab a slice. We won't even I won't even need permission into the Muppet Lounge or anything. There won't be any bells and whistles. That sound good? That sounds great. Okay. Take care now. Well, thank you, friend. And thank you to our audience uh for listening tonight. This was just uh an absolute pleasure. Uh, be sure to subscribe to Break a Bat wherever you get your podcasts. This is Al Malafrante signing off for the Broadway Podcast Network. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Break a Bat. This is produced by the fine folks at the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit and subscribe at bpn.fm slash breakabat. You can find me online at break underscore a underscore bat underscore podcast and you can also find the broadway podcast network on instagram at broadway podcast network it's been so great having you here with us today and we'll see you next time have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels well here's your chance Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. 
part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. They'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 